so it's easier. Okay. Are you recording too? Good, good. That's fine. I need a backup. Just tell me okay. a backup. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think uh, I think we're ready to get this thing on the on the road. What do you think? Uh, we're only right on time. Um, all right. So first of all, my name is Daniel, and uh, because I am new, uh, I get the honor of being able to be up here and give you guys the announcements. Um, if you have a problem with one of the announcements, I wasn't the one delivering it, or I wasn't the one making it. I'm just delivering it. So please don't kill the messenger. Um, the first things first, if you have not yet registered, the registration is there in the corner. Make sure you go there. You'll, if you don't have a shirt, if you don't have a book, if you don't have a uh, lanyard, and if you don't have a key, one of those things, go back there and speak to them and they'll make sure they take care of you. Um, if you do have your lanyard, I want everybody to just really quickly look at the back of it. The back is the one that doesn't have your name on it you'll see a schedule. We live and die by that schedule. So take a look at that. Memorize it if you can. If you can't, it's always going to be around your neck. So make sure you're carrying this and wearing this at all times. Um, you'll notice that there's a few color differences. The black lanyards are the people who can help you. The white lanyards are the people who are attending this. <laughs> if... Um, <laughs> If you have a question, for instance, about what's going on in the retreat, reach out to someone wearing black. If you have a question about your room or you need something from the conference center, reach out to someone in black before you reach out to the conference center. Um, we are going to do our best to keep things on schedule, but we need your help, which is why you look at that schedule and try and live and die by it. All of our activities are going to be in this room, um, except for quiet time. Quiet time is open to the entire facility. So... If you're looking for an activity, for instance, meeting with your groups, you're going to start here, and then you're going to go from there. If it's quiet time, you can go anywhere on the facility. Except for food. That's a big one. Food is going to be in the building across the way. I hope you guys eat there. Don't bring the food here. Um, we do have snacks, though, and those will be here. Um, <clears throat> okay. It looks like, oh, hello, all right. Um, <laughs> we encourage you to check out the bookstore, which is right here in the corner. Um, if you do want to purchase something, see Abuna Michael for help. And uh, we, important two things, uh, we have two priests with us, and a lot of people want to see them. Uh, so if you have questions for them um, that you don't mind having as a group discussion, there are index cards in the back by that registration table. Write down the question. And then uh, we're having a bonfire later. And the bonfire is the opportunity for them to answer that question for you. And if you'd like to spend individual time with either of, uh, either priest, then just go ahead and the bonfire is tomorrow. Um, go ahead and go to the back. There's going to be sign-up sheet. It's not going to be, is the sign-up sheet available now? Okay, so after the lecture, the sign-up sheets are going to be open in the back. Go ahead and sign up. It's first come, first serve. With that, I think that's everything. I am uh, graced with the blessing to be able to introduce our speaker, Father Anthony Paul, from the St. Paul Brotherhood.
And I'm, I'm trying to say that he's from San Diego as well, but he's currently serving in San Diego. Uh, with that, everybody, give him a round of applause. No, I should be good. And I'll try not to mumble, but I always mumble. Is there anyone from Canada here? Yes. Oh, excellent. <laughs> you're you're going to be my favorite the whole weekend. <laughs> That's the first degree of holiness. Um, second degree is if you have relatives there or someone you know has citizenship. Um, that makes you a holier person. Um, okay. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, Hopefully, God, God willing, next year you guys will have new blood. Um, this year's retreat is a lot harder to do than the... Actually, the first one was really hard. Um, talking about St. Anthony is not hard. Um, summarizing St. Anthony in the five lectures is hard. But um, this one's really hard because the grain of wheat is a whole other level of depth, even though it's this short. Um, how many of you guys actually read it? Don't be shy if you did not. That's what I thought. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's short, but it's, it's very, very, very heavy. Um, and it, it, it zooms in on one particular thing that we talk about a lot, and, and the lectures are going to come to that in a bit. Um, but I was always taught not to preach and not to teach anything you haven't lived um, and anything that you don't know. That's why I particularly struggle um, with this book because um, I definitely have not lived it at whatever level that Abunametta um, is talking about. So to the best of my ability, what I'll be doing is explaining and meditating on what he has written with the limitations of my own experience and my own knowledge and the things that I have been taught um, because I'm sure that whatever I meditate on like raise it to like the hundredth and that'll be like a fraction of a Bunamatta's um, depth on it. So the first thing before we get into it um, is to talk a little bit about desert spirituality because whenever you read a book, whenever you um, take something for a prophet, whenever you study something, it's important that you know its context. If you don't know that, then it's random and you also need to know a little bit about the person um, who wrote it. If somebody, for example like, never had a, a, a day in his life where he didn't have millions of dollars at his, like, disposal, he wouldn't be the best person to advise people about living in poverty, right? So you, you want to know something about the person who wrote it and about the context in which it's written so you understand the meaning of it and from where the person has uh, found his or her message. So first is that this is a, a I, I consider it a monastic literature, okay, in the sense that it is a product of living in the desert, living as, as a solitary. And that kind of writing has its own flavor. So we, especially as the, as the Egyptian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, take, particularly, take, take particular pride um, in our um, contribution to monastic literature, right? In the sense that monasticism started in Egypt with St. Anthony because he's the best... Um, and then uh, spread outwards within Egypt and then outside of Egypt. Um, and then the desert became basically your workshop 
of virtues, like we talked about last year. So it became the lab um, of, of research for spiritual life, right? So we take from the Bible um, the principles, like we said last year, because um, I remember someone didn't like that I said something, um, when I said that the Bible tells us the what's but not the how. So I'm not saying that the Bible is imperfect. Um, I'm saying that the Bible tells you, be this. It doesn't always say, and here's how you go about doing that. We look to the desert for those things. We look to the lives of the saints for those things. We look for those who have actually accomplished those things to say, how did you attain purity? How did you become calm? How did you become less selfish, right? Those are the things that we do. How did you overcome anger? Um, so the desert is a place for that because the desert is where you find solitude and silence. If you don't pursue solitude and silence, you are not going to learn anything, right? So long as everyone is yelling and screaming around you, or you yourself are yelling and screaming, then you will be completely deaf to any kind of learning, because all you can hear is noise, right? And so the desert is where the monk, the monachos, means like the solitude to be alone, okay? Confronts himself in silence and solitude, and thus becomes exposed to himself, right? Or herself when it's in it. And that exposing to self in the silence allows A, for God to speak, but B, for the person to find out who he or she is, which is often very, very, very uncomfortable um, because you discover that yourself isn't a very beautiful person, even though it was created to be beautiful. And underneath all the stuff we've done to it, it is beautiful, right? But you discover what you've, what you've done or who you've become. And then when you work... And community, right, because you have a, a bunch of monks who now come and live together, um, you see the flaws and virtues of others once you start having the community, right? So within the community, you might end up finding out that one person is calm and you're not, right? You might find that somebody is, is, is more patient than you. You might find that one person doesn't bear insults very well. You'll see virtues and you'll see vices. You'll see both, right? And then that becomes in itself as well a college, Right where you start to see what happened when this person acted in this way and what happened when they acted in this way, um, which again becomes teaching. So the silence, as we said, exposes you to the self, um, and it allows you to hear what's actually going on inside of you. And often it isn't pretty. I had this experience when I was in office at the monastery here, and it's it's not it's not comfortable because um, this exposure to the self is the beginning of humility. Because when you actually sit down in solitude and silence and find out who you really are, you find out that you're not what you thought you were. Maybe you thought you had all sorts of virtues and you don't. And it usually results in you running out to go see um, an Abba. Okay? And this is the other part of the desert, is this image of the, of the Abba. The Abba is the teacher. Okay, the Abba is the teacher, and the Abba is the father. And the Abba is someone who is spiritually experienced, who has mastered some or many virtues, someone of good repute in the desert for having grown up there or having been discovered, but who is experienced, right? And the key word is experienced. We're always looking for the person who is an actual image, an archetype of what it is that they are going to preach, right? Like I said, if somebody is, is preaching poverty and lives in a five-star like residence their whole entire life I'm not saying they're a bad person i'm just saying they might not be the best person to teach you about poverty and so the abba's job is to teach 
And usually the Abba is approached by others asking for a word, right? So the famous expression is always, give me a word, Abba. Give me a word to live by. Um, and sometimes it would be someone asking for specific advice. So if you read the early desert literature, you'll find biographies, right? You'll find um, the life of St. Bishoy. You'll find, obviously, life of Anthony is given. Life of Bishoy, life of Macarius of the Great, life of Macarius of Alexandria, life of Abba Pambo or Bimwa in Arabic. Um, you'll find um, the life of Pachumi, you'll find the life of Shinuda, you find lives, right? People who recorded their lives and their sayings. But then you'll also find dialogues, right? So you'll find the Historium Monachorum, right? Or you'll find the History of Palladius, which are other people's journeys where they just interviewed people and they, and they asked questions and got answers. Or the other famous one is the, the conferences of John Cassian, right? Where it'll literally be someone saying, tell me about this. And they'll have a long back and forth to get into it. Um, and we still go to those things till this day, um, and it's how we diagnose and treat spiritual illnesses, right, is by going back to those to find them out. Some people have the charism of teaching, not everybody did, right? Usually it was you went up and asked a question, they just answer. Some monks would answer, some of them wouldn't, some would say just learn from what I do and that's all I got for you. Um, and others had the charism or the gift of teaching, right? Abba Pachumias, for example, and Amba Shnuda, um seemed to build this into their lifestyles, a regular teaching, right, to the whole um, synod of monks because they lived in a communal lifestyle. Um, and there are signs here and there that St. Anthony gave sermons as well, right? In the life of Anthony, um, the, the long part about spiritual warfare um, seems to be self-initiated as a sermon um, to the monks, but we don't know. So the Abba disciples and identifies the next leaders. That's how the monastic tradition was, right? So St. Pachomius, for example, everybody knew that Theodore was going to follow him, right? There wasn't any, any surprise. Everybody knew after St. Shinuda that Abba Wisa was going to follow him, right? Because they saw a person who naturally was discipled into it, and then they would keep the spirit of their elder, the spirit of their Abba, in their own monastic community. And... There was different kinds of monastic communities, and that was all okay. So you basically had schools, okay? So you had a, a way of seclusion, you had a way of communal, you had a way of a group that did a lot of social services, right? And you had somewhere that was completely wrong, and you, and you stayed in your cell. So that's the background, that's the world where the desert is coming from, right? And then there's all sorts of, of stories, all that you can imagine. And it's very, very helpful and edifying until this day. Um, and you'd be surprised at how... Um, human these dudes are. I particularly, I don't know if they ordered it, recommend this one, okay? Uh, discourse is insane, because you'll even find them, um, like, humorous. Like, at one point, Dorotheus was like, he actually, he didn't use the Lord's name in vain, I'm sure he was actually calling out to God, but he was saying, my God, isn't this ridiculous? Like, he uses language that you might not have expected, like, to counter the, the desert, when he's pointing out, like, the the insanity of certain situations. He's very real, he's very funny, um, and very, very deep. So the desert is a city, okay, of, of monks who have decided, and nuns who have decided to die in the flesh for the sake of God, for the sake of their, their unity with him and the spiritual life. And from this, we get teachers. So this was the rich tradition of Egypt, and we had a long absence of prominent teachers coming out of the desert. There were teachers, right, but the kind that we'd read about in the books seemed to have disappeared for 
um, a long time, right? Where you see Macarius, Rupachomius, Dorotheos, you see this long lineage. And in my view, there, I mean, there's, there's some famous ones of the last century. In, in my personal view, there has been none like the likes of St. Anthony until I met in Meskin. Okay, that's my, my personal view. He's a human just like everyone else. I don't worship him. Um, but Abuna Met and Meskin um, lived a lifestyle very similar to the early Desert Fathers. He had a calling to monasticism very similar to the Desert Fathers. And the life that he lived as a monk was very similar to the Desert Fathers. And it's from this wealth and abundance um, that we find him. So I'll give you a brief background on him so that you know where... Um, he is coming from. Abuna Metta um, was born the end of World War, just after the end of World War I. Abuna Metta was born in 1919, four years before His Holiness Pope Shenouda. So they were contemporaries, both in age um, and in monastic life. And Abuna Metta's name was, was Yusuf, Yusuf Iskandar, um, Joseph. And like all good holy Christian men, he was a pharmacist. Um, and um, his family was not particularly wealthy. Um, but Abuna Metta apparently was, was seen as gifted, um, even as a child is seen as, as different. Um, a lot of this isn't well sourced in terms of his life. These are coming from his disciples and from others. So it's up to you to take what you, what you wish or not. There are certain parts of his life that are well documented, some that are not. Um, I remember hearing a story even that... Um, his parents, when they were, they were very poor, running out of, of flour, um, they had him put his hand in like the little barrels or bins of flour that they had, believing fervently that just by his prayers that they would increase. Um, and that, that did happen. Um, he recounts even an episode where he seems to have been, I think it's in his My Life in Crisis in Arabic, which is really hard for, for me to read. Um, but where so Weher or Anchorites or Spiritborn visited him even as, um, as a child. And these are things that we saw in some of the early Desert Fathers, right, where there was a, a divine presence, not all of them. Some of them, it was a compunction of heart and they turned and left. And for others, there was a divine calling um, of someone coming and saying, this is the life that we have uh, for you. So he lived in a, in a poor family, um, was successful academically, um, and then was very successful uh, materialistically. Um, in a period where most Egyptians were very, very poor, uh, Abu Namatta had two pharmacies, um, he had two cars, um, when most people had none, and um, he even had two villas. Um, having one villa in Egypt today is a big deal, right? So having two back then is, is, is humongous, right? So by all senses of the word, whether spiritual, social, economical, he was rich, okay? Um, and during that time, monasticism was seen as for failures. Um, it was seen as, like, if you couldn't make it in life, you're simple, you're not educated, right? Then all you got is Jesus, right? So then it was like, so you can go off and fill those monasteries, but we need the smart guys over here. Um, and that was the attitude that they had. So when he started to feel a sense of vocation towards monasticism, it wasn't received well. 
right? It wasn't like today where like the husband's like, oh my goodness, can you believe he became a monk and they'll be excited, right? Um, or even like, oh wow, I'm unworthy to know this guy, like he wants to be a monk and who am I? They're like, what's wrong with you, right? Something has snapped, right? And they, and they, they attacked him, right? They're like, no, 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 you've got to be insane. His family wasn't like, doesn't seem to be excited. His friends weren't excited. Um, and he even admits that uh, he hesitated a little bit when he was hearing all this. He wondered whether or not he should still go, but he found that the burning desire within him wouldn't let up. And finally, he was advised by the late Abu Namina al-Mutawahid, Mina the Solitary, who would later become Pope Krullus VI, um, to take the monastic calling, and he sent him to the monastery of St. Samuel the Great, which, was, which is still in uh, southern Egypt, uh, in Alminia, um, the province of Alminia, and was and is one of the poorest monasteries um, in the Coptic Orthodox Church. When he went, there was no paved road. There finally is now. That was done like 15 years ago or so. Um, there was no running water. Um, it's scorching heat down there. I don't know if any of you have read Mark Gruber's uh, Journey Back to Eden. Um, if you haven't, you should read that. He visits all the monasteries of Egypt. But it's the monastery where this guy walked out and he thought that the monks were trying to kill him. Like, he actually con- like was convinced. He's like, there's no way I was supposed to walk this far in the scorching heat. My feet were bleeding. That's where Bunamata went to live, not to visit. Um, so there's only five monks, and they did a procession for him when he arrived and rang the bells. And he said it was one of the most moving moments of his life. Um, in the monastery of St. Samuel... Um, he was the youngest. They were shocked that a young person was coming. Um, he had no door over his cell for the longest time, which he hated because he felt scared to pray, um, like with everybody seeing him. But he took on a very strict discipline. I think he was doing 360 Matanias a night um, that Pope Krolos VI gave him. Um, apart from his personal prayers, apart from the communal prayers, and then because all the other monks were old, Right? He was the one to do, take care of all of their needs. Right? He would fix this for that person, carry this for the other person. It was nonstop labor that his knees would often completely give out on him um, at night when he would go um, to pray. Um, I remember reading, I think it's in the intro to Orthodox Prayer Life, um, that sometimes the monks would try and sit near his door to spy or listen because they wanted to learn how he prayed. Um, because they saw in him a depth of, of prayer even in his living that they knew was different. And so even though he was this young, young man, um, they still wanted to learn from him. After staying there for a while, he got um, emaciated and, and his health started to deter uh, significantly. And so he was um, then sent to the monastery of Isurian. Um where he played a very prominent role. Because at the time, there was another famous leader of the church, another one of the greats of our church in modern times, um, the abbot Theophilus, Ambatophilus, um, who is renowned to this day as being like a, a, an amazing master. Um, and it was there that Ambatophilus elevated him right away um, and wanted Abunamet to be ordained a priest. Those of you who know anything about Ambatophilus, it was hard enough to be accepted into his monastery, right? That he would, he would have the firmest test to figure out if somebody deserved to be a monk or not. He would meet them. He would, he would ask ridiculous questions. 
um, he would he would trick people, and I mean trick in the sense of saying, you know, maybe you should uh, go home and say bye to your parents like before you come. And if they did, he was like, not coming, like game over. Um, that was like being nice. But there was other ones that he would pull out uh, the garments of being made a monk and put them out, and then not ordain anyone. Like it would just be like a, <laughs> a tease for them. So Amatophilos, it was very rare to see him publicly favor someone. Okay. Um, and he did this with the Bunametta, and he did it with Pope Shinuda III. Um, he actually had Pope Shinuda teaching monks how to be monks when Pope Shinuda was still a layman. Um, so this was a, a man of, of vision. Bunametta refused to be a priest, um, and because he, monastically speaking, priesthood isn't supposed to be a part of monasticism, and he wanted to stand by that principle, um, and so he refused. Amatophilus begged him, and so he refused. So then Bunametta... Uh, so then uh, Matovilas tricked him, told him he wanted to see him, put his hand on his head, and was like, ha, ha, you're a priest. Um, <laughs> and so then Abunametta went and locked himself in his cell for three days. But then Matovilas, in his humility, also locked himself up for three days. Um, and Abunametta was moved by the humility of the bishop um, and, and conceded and, and gave him his obedience. He was very successful in the monastery. He helped... Um, teach some of the great monks of Assyrian and was very close friends with some of their modern saints. Elder Mateos, for example, was a very close friend um, of Abuna Matamuskin. His, his own biography is available in English now, and he's a great, great elder. Um, but that was a period of thriving um, in Wedi Natsrun. Because of his skill, because of his work there, the church, um, as you know in our tradition, right, the Pope of, of the See of Alexandria we don't choose a pope, um, which is a common misconception, and it's wrong that we say it. What we're doing is choosing a bishop for Alexandria. That's what the real process is supposed to be. Because the bishop of Alexandria is the pope of the church. Um, it's not we choose a pope to make bishop um, over Alexandria. It's the opposite. So because of the patriarchal duties towards the church, um, our pope lives in Cairo because it's the capital. When the capital is Alexandria, he stayed there. Um, and so for practical reasons, obviously, the Pope had to move. And because of that, because they didn't want the diocese to be neglected, the Diocese of Alexandria, typically there's a wakil or a vicar um, of uh, the church that will be sent to that diocese to act as the Pope. He acts as a bishop because he can't be a bishop. You can't have two bishops in one um, diocese. So Abuna Metta was sent to be that vicar. Um, and in a very short time... Um, he like wreaked havoc in a in a good way, um, in the sense that there was intense renewal of education and spirituality, of building all sorts of stuff. Today, everybody talks about Saint George of Sporting, right? That famous church that put out Bunimishwai Kamil, right? And and great people like Malati, all of these people. That church was established by Bunimetta with Abunabishwai um, Kamil. Um, so these were were great times, but then. Satan, who likes controversy, right, spurred some people up against Abu um with division. And so Abu was sent back to the monastery. And this was the beginning of a very difficult time for both Abu and the whole church. Um, because there started to be a constant conflict um, that would be around Abu that exists um, arguably till this day. Um, so Abu returned to Esoyen Monastery, where... Amatophilus immediately made him the official elder for everybody. He was like, for all spiritual guidance, go to this man. Um, and he took on that role. 
um, and very successfully. Um, and then that division carried over into the monastery where people got jealous. So the jealousy caused division, the division increased, and eventually Bunamatta said, I need to leave, right? There is no other solution to this. And so he made a decision that they were going to go, him and anyone who, actually he originally told no one to follow him. It ended up being that people followed him, um, that he was going to go live as a hermit, um, away from the noise of the people and of the church and of any kind of politics. Um, so after, to make a long story short, he went to a place called Wadi Rayyan. He had um, seven monks or six monks with him. Um, they lived there in I'm, like austere asceticism for 10 years. During that time, Pope Yusef excommunicated him. Um, he didn't know. He found out that it was published in the newspaper. Um, but he had no idea that he had been excommunicated until he saw the newspaper article, um, him and the monks. Um, and he says of that day that, that it was a good day for him, um, in the sense that he said, I, I, I put myself out in prayer and I sold myself to God. And I said, if my mother abandoned me, you're still my, my father. Um, and those were dark days in the church, very, very dark days in the church. So um, he lived there. And during this time of the 10 years that he's there, Abu Amina the solitary became Pope Krulus VI. Um, and of course, Pope Krulus VI knew Abu Nametta. He was one who advised him where to become a monk and had a deep love also for Abu Nametta. Um, so it happened that Abu health was getting very bad and he had to go to Cairo. Someone informed the Pope that he was in Cairo and the Pope immediately ordered him uh, to come to him. He had been having dreams apparently about Abu Nametta and he had been on his mind for a while worrying about him and the monks that were with him. And here you see a deep image, deep, deep, deep image of humility. Pope Krodlis is again another great of our time. Gave him a full matanya um, and apologized to him for whatever suffering he had experienced as a result of the, the problems in the church um, and asked him to, be, to come back, restored him completely, his priesthood and his disciples, and asked him uh, to revitalize the monastery, the ancient monastery of St. Macarius the Great in modern-day Shahid. He did that. Um, that monastery rang the bells for the first time, and I don't know how long when he went there. Um, and anyone who sees it today, you would never Im imagine 70 years ago that that could exist. Um, he revitalized it spiritually, academically, um, economically. On every level, he, he revitalized. So he passed away. I was actually in Egypt when he passed away, uh, 2006, I believe. Um, yeah, it's been 11 years now, um, and he leaves behind him a legacy of a corpus of writings that the English translations, unfortunately, are like not even a 20th um, of what exists in, in Arabic. Um, he's difficult to read in Arabic. I can read Arabic, but I, I can't read Ibn Amatta in Arabic, um, because Ibn Amatta has every word mean something, right? He's not arbitrary in his selection um, of words. He was a scholar, he knew many languages. Um, where he didn't, he'd, he'd bring people in who did. Um, and if you see his personal library in the monastery, I got to see it a couple of years ago, it's voluminous. Um, and you see his notes and his scribbles all over different books. Um, he, was, he, he read a lot, he prayed a lot, um, and is one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest fathers of uh, our time. So I'm saying that um, want to know who he is because that's who we're reading. Um, I took longer than I intended to, I'm sorry, so I might go five minutes over, Jenny. Um, and um, also, 
because when he writes about killing the self, he is not writing it arbitrarily, right? He is writing it as somebody who really did it, right? He wrote it as somebody who was rich and denied himself from a materialistic perspective. He denied himself as somebody who was intelligent but allowed himself to be at the mercy of people who might have known less than him. Um, and also as somebody who went through enormous um, suffering, right? Um, not having done much wrong to deserve it. I won't say he's flawless, but I will say that nothing warranted um, what happened. So having said all of that, um, this one sermon that was given 43 years ago, 1974, yeah, 43 years ago, um, around this time, um, was one sermon that we're turning into five. Um, and it could have been much longer. They're just very deep. And so, like I said, to the best of my ability, I will just maybe guide the meditations through the book um, to discuss the self, um, what it's for, what its problems are, what to do with it, um, and then how to resurrect again. Um, before doing that, I will very quickly, you guys must have all memorized it by now because every one of my talks starts with the same thing. Um, but it's important because it's what this is all about. Um, what is the purpose of God creating man? Fast and, and, and quick. Pathetic. <laughs> love. Okay, so God made us out of love. What did God want from man? Relationship. Okay. What was man created as? What was the design? Sorry? I heard everyone at the same time, I bet. What was that? Image and likeness. Excellent. Okay. Image and likeness, which is of whom? Right. And God is... Yeah, that was a bad one, because you could have put so many things in that blank. Um, God is love, and he is perfect, okay? So there's a design to man. Man was designed to be in his image and likeness. Man was designed to be in relationship, okay? And this image and likeness, okay, isn't arbitrary, right? This, this spirit that is in man, that is not in animals, right, is designed to be identical to God. And the spirit is where I interact with God, so God wanted man to be in relationship with him. And the reason why I'm coming back to that is because we're going to zoom in. This whole thing is going to be simply about this decision-making, about whether I want to be in this image and likeness, whether I want to be in the spiritual world, okay, or whether I want to be in the physical, the body, right? That's what this whole book is about. And so man was made with a flesh because man is not immaterial unlike God. Right? Man doesn't self-exist unlike God. Right? And so God made man, which means that man only exists because of God. So anything in the world means nothing outside of the existence of God and the existence of you. Right? Because everything was made in that context. And this is that context that we're going to enter in. The spiritual life is about whether or not I want to live in this image and likeness, whether I want to have this interaction with God or not. And I have free will to decide whether I want to do that. And so free will was given to me so that I can decide whether I want to love God or hate God. And so I'm going to add the love and hate definitions here, 
because we tend to talk about hate always as this aggressive, like horrible, negative thing. Whereas hate is just a word. Okay, what hate means is not choosing. Okay, so what I love, I choose. What I hate, I do not choose. And that doesn't make the thing I do not choose intrinsically evil, right? If I, like, that's why, why God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He's just saying, I chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau, right? We've added like, other negatives to the word hate, but this is where it comes from, right? So this is the context of this grain of wheat. So before getting into the grain of wheat, Abuna Metta starts by talking about the concept that precedes the verses about the death of Christ, because this was done during Lent, right? By talking about love. Um, and so he starts by saying, before his crucifixion, Jesus told the Greeks the parable of the grain of wheat. He began to explain it with these words, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he gives a few other verses about hating the self and loving the selves, about carrying your cross. Um, he who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. So he basically takes, not basically, he takes a verse about this concept from every one of the four Gospels to present it as a consistent theme um, of the Gospel. And as we said, we make the decision of love to show what I value, which is the whole premise of this book is a question mark of what is it exactly um, that you love? And so he's taking this to come back to this concept that we just talked about of being created in the image and likeness of God, and he now separates the self, okay? The self or the ego or the id, okay? Which um, we will be discussing from here on in almost as your, your seat of consciousness, okay? That rational part of you that gets to decide things, right? What you think about, what you do, all of those things. So, so Abuna Metta starts by saying the self comes between the body and the soul. Said St. Isaac, Isaac the, the Syrian. And here soul is actually being used in place of, of spirit, just to make something clear. It is either united with the body, okay, so the ego is either united with the body or the self, and takes its part against the spirit, or it's united with the spirit and works with it against the body. Okay, so he's saying... Right from the get-go, his premise is, you have a decision, okay, you've got a body, and you've got a spirit. And you've got to figure out whether or not yourself, your, your decision-making, your, your mental capacity, is in line with your body, okay, to live completely carnally against the work of the spirit, the image and likeness of God, or whether you want to align with the spirit against the body and rise above the nature of the body. The Bible says in Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to prevent you from doing what you would. The self, okay, also known as the ego, is called the seat of consciousness. And so Bunamata explained this saying, the self is the seat and source of all emotions, and it is embodied in one's physical life. The spirit, however, is the basis and expression of all that is spiritual in touch with God, and in loving relationship with Him. We are called to make the self lean toward the Spirit, so we may obtain everlasting life. For if the self leans toward the body or carnal life, it will be 
or body, bodily or carnal life, it will be destroyed and we shall be deprived of eternal life. The flesh is of dust and it returns to the dust and dies. Okay, so we have three, two things going on here. So we've got the body, okay? And here we see some basic concepts from Genesis. Man's existence as flesh is limited. Why? Because it was made. Right? Because it was made, because it doesn't self-exist, because it's made of material, it has an expiry date. And so man by nature is mortal and limited. So as a mere creature, man will simply die and that's the end of it. Nothing lives eternally on its own other than God. Anything else eternal has to be made eternal. Okay? It has to be given that as a, as a gift okay? by the goodwill of whatever it is that can give it and that only thing is God. Okay, so that's why the, the body is, is limited. The eternal one basically has to will it for that, for that gift. So we are not immortal by nature. We are not incorrupt by nature. Okay, we're going we're gonna to decay. We only receive these things by grace as a gift. Now, the only way to have this grace, grace however, is to live according to the Spirit. So you don't get these gifts if you don't live according to the Spirit. Right? This is why Adam was warned of what he was warned with at the very beginning of creation. Whereas like, if you do these things, you will die, right? Not I will kill you, you will die, right? Because you've now introduced something against its nature. You've now introduced um, disease into it. So the body is a created being that is just element and dies. So if I choose to align myself only with the bodily and the sensual, then as Abuna wrote here, I will just die. It's that simple. Um, St. Athanasius actually wrote the same um, in On the Incarnation. And he, he used the expression that when men continued to sin, they went into uh, non-existence. So that's the body. Then you have the spirit. And I'm talking about the human spirit, okay? Which Abu um, Namet in this book will call the natural spirit. And he's talking about what, what you have in you as a human being that every human being has in him um, or her, irrespective of race, religion, creed, baptism or no baptism, everybody has a human spirit in the image and likeness of God. And myself is either aligned to it or to my body. My spirit, however, fell with Adam, the first man. And the spirit throughout our lives gets sick. It got sick, it got maimed, it got damaged. And the consequence is it doesn't function properly. Think of your body when, when it's not treated well. It doesn't run well when you don't treat it well. The same is true of our spirit. And the spirit was divorced from God who no longer was indwelling with us from the fall, okay, from the fall of man, the Holy Spirit left man, okay, um, and thus we lost that connection that we had. Man didn't know how to live spiritually as a result because he lost the Holy Spirit in there, and so the consequence was God had to help man externally, right? So he gave him prophets, he gave him visions, he gave him external helps, but throughout the Old Testament, we see him working externally on man rather than um, internally. Um, they did, as, as is said in, in the book of Judges over and over, each did what is right in his or her own eyes, right? Instead of having this internal clock or this internal guide. In other words, it was relativism, which I despise. Uh, so there was a need for renewal and for the spirit to be taught by God. And that's why... Right, So this is, this is Abuna's intro of, of what we're getting into. He says why we needed baptism. So baptism was a new birth for man. A new birth for man is achieved. It is called the birth from above to distinguish it from physical birth. 
The new birth is accomplished by the Holy Spirit at work in the soul, which then becomes united with him. Thus man's spirit becomes joined and bonded to God, so the person baptized into Jesus is said to be born of God. He can thus be called the Son of God through the power of Jesus Christ. This adoption, being made a child of God, enables a person to live according to the laws of God. The person who remains faithful to God and is inspired by Him will live eternally with Him. For the baptized man born of water and the Spirit is born of God that is reborn from above. So in summary, what he's saying is we are made to be in a certain way. We lost that thing. We didn't have this guide within us, the Holy Spirit, to help us overcome the body. And so man was in a dilemma, right? And that what we, what we received in incarnation, what we received in baptism, was that ability restored, right? That now I can do that again, because now I do have the Holy Spirit that can align with myself to overcome. That's what, what is being corrected. And so we get into a major conflict, okay? The flesh is originally a creation with no corruption, despite all human passions and lust, and is created to yield to the spiritual law and be controlled by the spirit without losing any of man's natural passions and desires, okay? So here we've got this problem. You've got a body that was made to serve the spirit, okay? And there was nothing wrong. And we're going to add to this something before getting into the conflict better, because um, this talk is about introducing you to yourself. Um, however... This new beginning in the spiritual life is complete. We start the new birth, as it were, from scratch. So the day that I'm baptized, okay, it's like I'm starting from scratch as though I'm in Eden, okay? I have this restored nature. The new birth is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Sorry. Um, the flesh, on the other hand, has already been living for a long time without the control or guidance of the Spirit, right? So he's speaking both historically, right, and he's speaking about the individual, both, thus allowing human lust and passion to grow unnaturally. A man has lived with and in sin for so long that he has allowed it to possess his whole being and so has lived long with sin. Sin is naturally of the flesh and the carnal mind neglects the laws of God, coming to hate any spiritual law that limits its physical pleasure, self-pride, and ego. So, the body was made, to, to explain in, in, in easier terms, even his translation is difficult. So, the body was made... Okay, to yield to the spirit. That's the goal. But the body has been conditioned to live for the senses, right? So this is where we're starting to see the beginning of the conflict. So when one starts to train the body toward obedience to the spiritual, he finds a whole host of reactions coming from his body, rejecting and fighting against the concept of submitting to the spirit. This is what ends up happening to him. He finds that he wants physical pleasure, right? He wants recognition, pride, an inflated ego. Living in sin for a very long time makes it not only difficult, but sometimes repulsive to consider doing anything spiritual, right? It becomes an actual, not even just I don't want to, it becomes a, a disgusting thought. That's why the solution is being in the Holy Spirit, because self-will alone will not suffice for making these necessary changes, okay? You have to be aligned with the Holy Spirit to do this. This is something that a lot of people don't realize. Your personal will won't be enough, okay? If it isn't in unity with the Holy Spirit, you can want it all you want. You will not be able to do it. Old habits take on a deep power over the person, and thus it's very hard for the person to change. In doing this, okay, when the person starts to strive for the Spirit, 
the spirit, the human spirit, is excited that it's united with the Holy Spirit, but now the self is in struggle. On the one hand, he has the body wanting the self to allow it to take control over it and lead it where he wants, okay? So this, the self is sitting in the middle, and the, the body is saying, yo, chill with me, right? Let's do our thing. Um, and on the other hand, you've got the spirit united with the Holy Spirit, um, saying, no, no, drop that, like, come to this side, this is what you were what you're made for. And the self finds itself a captive um, in this battle. The gospel is what lays down the laws and the principles needed to release the spirit um, of the new man, so as not to return to the old man. The microphone sounds. This one's louder. Okay, so the struggle then becomes, oh, I can hear me, um, <laughs> my old man coming out. Um, the struggle becomes for the person to be released from this. And this is the expression, the release of the spirit. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder, because they say that there's a period of Buna was a spiritual guide to Pope Shinuda, um, and they have this expression in common um, with one another, this concept of the release of the spirit. And so this old man, right, the guy who's been a slave and to this whole history of whatever, okay, is wanting to be released. The self wants to be released out of captivity, okay, to this old man wanting to become the new. So who is the old man? And this is the introduction to you. Um, and I want you to really self-accuse, okay, as we go through this next section. Um, the old self is the man of sin and lust, pride and false freedom. His ego is his only concern. His thoughts, his labors, his hates, his griefs, his joys, his peace, his fears, his glory, and even his worship. He works so as to glorify himself, and if he does not achieve glory thereby, he despises his work. He loves, but only when his ego and pride have been satisfied. He hates because he has not been successful and honored. He is sad because he has been injured and his spirit has lost its source of pleasure. He is satisfied because he has achieved his passions, joy and pleasures. He feels at peace when comfortable with circumstances, but he is afraid when he loses his sense of security. He fights and compromises and struggles all to bring glory to himself, but becomes lazy and sleeps and ceases to strive if there is no glory to be achieved. This is a really hard paragraph. A very, very hard paragraph. So take a moment and reflect on that list, okay? What makes the old man when it's all about his own thoughts, his own labors, his own self, okay? Are you working to glorify you, right? I'm not going to repeat the whole list because we just read it. What does, who does this represent, okay? Is this you? This is what we all need to ask. When you plan for a career, do you take pleasure in your job, wherever you are, on the ladder, as it is, or only with the promise of promotion? Right? These are just these are random questions to make you think about where in normal life some of these things might raise their head. In other words, can you accept to stay where you are in your job forever? Or is there an expectation of getting more, whether it's more prestige, more power, more money, more honor, would you take the job if it didn't have these? And why? Where is your mind at, right? What is the self struggling for? 
self-fulfillment, self-glory, self whatever it is, ask yourself. Within your network of friends, are you satisfied to hear about others all the time? Or do you feel a need for others to hear about you? When you speak in a group gathering, is it mostly about yourself? Or do you try and actively learn about others in your group? When you're having conversations, whenever they say something, do you immediately connect it to, oh yeah, I know about that, I did go through this. Is the I coming out more often than is, than is healthy, if we're even aware of what healthy is? When you sign up for religious things, okay, forget secular things. Is it because you want to give an image of holiness for others to see that you're religious? Right, maybe it'll increase your chances of marriage. Um, or is it because you're sincere in wanting to learn? If you want to be sure, then do you have the same confidence about your religiousness with non-church people? Okay, do you behave the same way among your non-religious acquaintances or friends as you would with the religious? For example, if you're in the lunchroom at work with a bunch of non-believers, or better, with people who are, are hostile, okay, towards your faith, will you pray with the same conviction over your food? Or will you... Or will you find a way to make sure that everyone likes you or a way to make sure that some group is going to praise you, right? So you could choose not to pray because they're hostile and you don't want it to hurt your chances, right? Of being like, oh, they're going to view me as like one of those kind, right? Or you could also still make a decision to pray and still do it for praise, even with the hostile group, right? You could say, no, I'm going to do it and then I'm going to tell my Sunday school kids how I did this. Right? And I was able, in the face of all atheism, right, to pray grace before meals. Right? So your answer could be yes or no to whether you behave the same. And either behavior could be wrong right, or have the wrong motivation. Right? So it's, it's an internal exercise of what am I doing and, and why. Is it about me? Is all, are all my decisions about my praise and my glory um, and all of these things? Um, you could go to Tazbaha because you want to be a priest, but you don't even like Tazbaha. Um, but you want to be seen as part of that crew, right? You want to get that kind of attention. You could teach Sunday school because the girl or guy that you like is a servant. So you want to be seen in that way because that's where you're going to find whatever you're looking for. But if he or she dumps you, will you put your grief and joy first, right? Will you stop serving because the service no longer served its purpose, right? If that person moves on or you didn't get what you're looking for, were you serving for the service or you're doing it because of an, a need, whether it was hooking up or whether it was because you wanted praise or whether it was because you were bored, whether it was because you just needed something to do and this was your leftover time, right? What was your reason for doing it? Was it self-serving? And when yourself was served, did you walk away from it? Because if you did, then this was 100% about you and absolutely nothing to do with God. Are you one of those people who knows that everyone likes you, so you are happy with your status with others, and so you'll be kind? There are selfish people who give, okay? Just like Abunamatha just talked about. But the person who's selfish gives when it's convenient for him, when it doesn't oppose something he wants, or if he fears some kind of loss, he might not give it. Right? Where it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing fine, I have enough time, I have enough money, I can do this. But the minute it's going to cost me something, okay, whether it's the wealth, the fame, the prestige, the status, whatever it is that it is that I want, then I might not give. Right? I'm giving only when it serves my ambition. 
Um, it's like the little kid who shares his toys because he's afraid his mother will yell at him, right? Not because he's generous. And that he might not be allowed to go to the birthday party after, right? It's like, no, I better share. If I don't, I'm not going to be allowed to go, right? That's now his motivation for sharing, right? This is not selfless. This is selfish, right? This is self-full, okay? So it's the complete opposite. It's a selfish sharing, which I'm sure many of us do. Um, do you give advice to people out of your deep love and concern for them and then react violently, internally, if not externally, but at least internally, when someone tells you where you are imperfect, right, where you can be like, you know, maybe you didn't approach that right, and you feel so good that you were the guru, right, that you were the, the one that they came to and you gave all this valuable advice, and yet when someone tells you like, wow, you were really mean, right, or like, you were really like, not friendly with that person, right, that suddenly internally, like, I can't believe they said that. How dare they say that? Who do they think they are? They're not the boss of me. They're not my father confession. They're not, insert whatever title here, right? And it's a violent internal reaction because the self wants to give only for its benefit, only for its praise, only for its worship, and not for the right reason. When you know someone's in need, do you wait until you're not tired or in the mood to help them, right? Or is that our approach? I've done that. Right? I've, I've definitely done that, where it's like, I'm not in the mood, can't handle it. And then we'll justify it. Right? And it's like, if I talk to them right now, it's going to hurt them more. So it's better for them that I don't. When really it's, I'm, I'm tired and I don't feel like it, I'm not doing it. Right? That's like the, the reality of things. How many of us have done that or are doing that? Or do you wait for your mood to be satisfied first? Uh, can I ask for clarification about something you said earlier in terms of? stay in it if I was if I knew that there was no chance of being promoted or anything like that I mean how do you I mean it sounds like you're asking to, it sounds like Abuna is asking us not to be driven he's saying not to be driven by self gain right so he doesn't say having something is wrong but he's saying wanting things isn't perfect Right? The perfection of man would be to, to be content, to use his gifts and to accept everything. But if I'm always self-serving, so and we're not saying promotion is wrong, right? We're not saying climbing a ladder is wrong. But my point in asking that question, because he didn't ask that question, I did, right? Is to say, what is your natural disposition to always look for increase? Because if that's built into you, it's part of you in, in your system, right? Or can you say, what I need is, to, is this, Right? Whatever it is. I am married. I have kids. I need this number. Okay? And I can live within these means. Okay, good. Then I'm not living for the next promotion. I'm not living for the praise. I'm not living for the next step. Those things may happen. Those aren't bad things. Right? I'm just saying, what is it that I want? To see what is myself like. Right? Like, there could be a person who joins. I could have easily asked, did you join the monastery to become a bishop? Right? Because if you took this line, you have that potential. Or did you join knowing and being content with being a monk in his cell and never anyone knowing your name or what you did or what you do? Right? It may happen you become a bishop. But is that what you're looking for or are you content with who you are and, and where you are? Okay? Um, in my marriage, and substitute marriage here for friendships, 
for any kind of relationship that you have. Just marriage is a, is a good example of it. Do I want my spouse, friend, insert whatever here, to submit to my will when we're in conflict for me to be content, right? Even with friendships, right? Is it once you submit and acknowledge that I'm right or that I'm entitled this thing, is that what brings me my peace? Because if it is, it means that I am selfish, right? It means that I'm not looking to how to bend my will. I want the world to bend their will to me, right? And say, you're so right, right? And so unintentionally, this is why he used the word worship and it was not accidental. We are putting ourselves in the place of God, right? We become the measuring stick. We become the standard. We want everyone's will and thoughts and motions and everything to bow down to us. Or instead, do I want to submit to my spouse's will or to my friend's will to the best of my ability? And how do I deal with conflict? What's the difference between how I behave publicly versus in secret? And here, Bunemetta puts this other very convicting passage where he says, the old man worships and prays and prolongs his prayers. He's talking about the spiritual part. He's diligent in singing hymns so as to appear religious and be held in high esteem by those who think that he's very godly. But if there's no one to observe and flatter him, he neglects his worship and fasting and shortens his prayer time, rushing through his devotions. And then he quotes Matthew 6.16, They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. Right? This is the self-absorbed person. Are you in secret the same person that you are in public? Have you told someone to fast and pray and you don't? Have you rebuked someone, Californians don't, for not fasting Wednesday and Friday, um, while secretly you're not, right? I've made fun of Californian fasting um, before because you all fast with cheese. Um, and then caught myself having something very questionable, right, the same day that I made fun of it. Um, to, to, to realize that, no, we, we all do this. Right? I'm like, I can't believe these, these wee Cali people. Um, but we do this, right? We're telling people, you know, you need to have firm conviction. You need to hold on and you need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, meanwhile, we're doing the like, exact um, same thing that they're doing wrong, sometimes um, even worse. This is one of the things that I'm thankful for confession for because sometimes in confession, I'm convicted by the zeal and religiousness of the person confessing to me, right? That I'm like, man, I better clean up my act. Um, if Abuna takes a service away from you, are you upset that it was taken away from you? Or are you grateful and asking God to tell you what he wants you to do next, right? That will tell you who you were serving, right? Was it me and my image, right? Or was it genuinely and purely wanting to fulfill a work for Christ? I could go on. Most of us are severely under the power of the old man. The self still wants to be pleased carnally. So the biggest enemy that you have is yourself. Okay, this is your, your biggest enemy is you. Even more, I would say, at our stage in life than the devil. Because you have so much in you, me as well, Right? That is fighting against yourself that the devil often doesn't, doesn't have to do much. There's a, a really funny and famous story, I think I said it the, last year as well, 
um, where a guy wanted to be a hermit and he goes to St. Bishoy and he goes, I want to be a hermit. And St. Bishoy says, you're not ready to be a hermit. You haven't killed the self, actually, was the reason. And he's like, no, 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 I got this. Um, so St. Bishoy's like, okay, whatever, I'm not going to force you not to. So he does it and he comes back to um, St. Bishoy after a period. He goes, pray for me, then the warfare is intense, right? Because amazing guys become like guru mode, right? Fighting demons and all that stuff, right? So St. Bishoy innocently starts praying for him. And the devil appears to St. Bishoy and goes, I have no idea what you're praying for. I didn't even know the guy was there, right? He was like, <laughs> he goes, that guy is fighting himself, right? And that was, that was the message, right? Is that he's creating this like, delusion that he's under intense warfare, and it's him, right? It's him battling his own will and having whatever in his cell. Like, it's, it, it, was, it was fully egotistical, right? He wanted to be a hermit because hermits are holy, Right, so I'm gonna be a hermit, and then I'll be the guru, and then everyone's gonna ask me for my advice. And who needs Bishoy, right? Because I'm elder whoever who fights myself. So, the biggest enemy to you is you, and this is why the Lord uses the language of hating yourself. Okay, not choosing the self, not pandering to yourself, because it will be the way of death, literally. Right, not just metaphorically. But literally, it will be a carnal existence, yes, with a carnal end. When immortality is an option, right? Why choose mortality when you could be immortal, right? It's, it's stupid, right? That's what St. Anthony said. Like, he's like, it's, it's ridiculous, right? That man would, like, say, like, I don't want this humongous thing because I want this tiny, really ridiculous thing. Um, the self controls all your actions, both physical and spiritual, so your decisions might imprison the Holy Spirit that you received, hindering his work in and through you because you are fighting him. And only by hating himself can man reach to the Spirit, capital S, and the Spirit, small case S. A person must master his passions in his natural spirit if the Holy Spirit is to become active and radiant and will express love for God, what we discussed at the beginning, which is what man was designed and made for. And when he's doing what he's designed and made for, this will bring him joy because it's functioning properly. So the challenge of the self is simple in definition. In definition. It's just choice. Okay? It's a question of love. That's why Christianity is about love. That's all it is. Where do you want to show your love? Right? So if you master your passions, the spirit is released. All these saints that you hear about, right, or I've had the blessing to meet, these things are normal, right? They shouldn't be abnormal. They are normal when you live according to the Spirit because the Spirit becomes released. And now it is working with the Holy Spirit. So it isn't strange, right, that someone has a gift of prophecy. It isn't strange, right, that somebody has any of the gifts of the Spirit of healing, of, of prophecy, of foresight, or any of these things, because that should be what happens, because that's what God said would happen if you do it right. So there's nothing shocking about it, right? They're not spectacular phenomenon. They're natural phenomenon. It's a matter of choice. We can choose, as Abuna says here, we can choose either the one or the other to enjoy the liberty of the flesh and the soul, which both lead to destruction, sin, and eternal damnation, or to exercise control, renouncing all the license that leads to destruction and sin, so the spirit is released and soars to reflect the light. You can't pretend that they're all okay, because they're not. The body is in stark contrast with the spirit. 
and thus you are forced to make a statement. Making a statement means not allowing the status quo to continue. Yourself, as he says, must first renounce his sinful deeds and the liberty that will surely lead to destruction. You cannot have liberty of the flesh and body and also enjoy the freedom of the spirit that is united with the Holy Spirit. What is your choice? And that is it. Sorry, it went longer than I thought for number one. Is producing you to you and me to me, which might be uncomfortable, but I hope in your quiet time you reflect on. Any questions, comments, criticisms? Summary really quickly. Body, soul, and spirit, okay? Self in the middle, deciding whether I want to be with body, whether I want to be with spirit, right? I'm at war with my body if I'm with the spirit. I'm at war against my spirit if I'm with my body, right? I should choose spirit because that's why I was made, but I can choose body because I have free will. What I choose shows what I love. If I love me, I die. Most of us love me, or themselves, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so when you mentioned the story about the monk who can't destroy, um, how do we know when we're fighting ourselves or when we're fighting the devil? It doesn't matter. Because they're both wrong, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a song, um, my priest in Canada drilled this into us, right? He was like, um, because we would ask, like, what about thoughts, whether mine or the devil's? The psalm says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are vain, right? So anything we think is probably lame, right? And then anything with the devil is obviously worthy of being rejected. Instead, we only work towards what is right and good, what sort of things are pure, what sort of things are lovely, what sort of things are honorable, that whole list, right? Um, from Ephesians, I think. Um, that's what we should do. So fighting myself will have the same consequence of, of fighting the devil, right? But it's just that the, typically your, your warfare starts with you, with what you've conditioned yourself to want and do. After you overcome that, that's when the devil starts to come in with the supernatural. He might goad you on to help promote your body here and there, right? Like if you're, I don't know, if you're struggling like to stop cussing, for example, because you've habituated that habit, okay? He might help you out by having like three people in your office continually cuss, right? But the fight to not cuss is yourself, right? It's not against the, the devil. But when you've overcome that, then you see a warfare against you personally, and actually you'll see some of that in the next lecture. Peter. Right. So the Holy Spirit teaches me what the gospel teaches, right? It teaches me the ways of God. So if I'm struggling to be in that light and doing what the Holy Spirit has taught us, right? I'm, I'm emboldening, I'm, I'm reinforcing the unity between the self, like my spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit. But if I perpetually choose the body, then I'm, I'm not going to have any relationship with the Holy Spirit. Self, 
Vince's choice that we have to make, every single great theologian that you mentioned in the beginning had to physically displace themselves from the world in this external environment and go into seclusion in order to be able to get away from the background noise. And when they re-entered society in the way that we see it today, they were very uncomfortable. And they found a very different spiritual battle than what they were facing beforehand. So I guess my question is that how much control do we actually have when we do make that choice and take that first step and say, I do want to remove my mental process. I'm making the choice by which to come with a new spiritual life with God as opposed to seek these sort of carnal lusts. But at the same time, once I emerge from a very different situation from like a retreat like this, entering into a world in which I have no control and which more or less might have a greater impact than anything that I've decided for myself. It's a question of belief. If I believe this is true, then it has to change my conduct irrespective of where I am. So Christianity was alive and thriving before monasticism, right? Monasticism was a response to martyrdom. It was not, it was not a, a seeking of um, spiritual gifts. It was a con- that was a consequence, but it wasn't the objective. The objective of monasticism was martyrdom. And so it was, it was witness, it was martyria, right? And so the benefit we received from it is that it helped us learn more about that world. But the whole world had started to turn Christian by the conduct of Christians, right? And the reason why it's hard today is because man loved himself rather than God collectively. And so it made it collectively hard for man to fight himself because we've normalized things that should never have been normalized. Right? Look at until maybe a hundred years ago, right? Almost the whole world was Christian. Right? Look at it today. Right? It's because Christians weren't Christians. We're the biggest reasons that we're not. We we chose to abandon the truth of the gospel to pander to the self systemically. Right? So an individual does it and it becomes a, a community thing and then that extends. But it's a matter of conviction. If I believe that Christ is God then I have to accept what he says, and what he says is the opposite of mostly what, what I do. Last one before Jenny stones me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Right, Peter. Does anybody want to go uh, is, the, is the death of the, uh, the old, is that a, a fast process, like a quick thing, or does that happen over extended? Or is your whole life? It's your whole life. <laughs> yeah. That was an easy one. St. Anthony said, a, man, a man's greatest might is to put his weakness before himself at all times, which is the self, and to expect temptation until the end. Mr. Larbelli. Okay, so the uh, uh, the this, this is going to conclude our our talk for the evening, and so um, from here we're going to have a period of uh, time for snacks, followed by um, we're going to have the the prayers, the evening prayers, the midnight praises um, for.
the fact that a lot of us haven't read the book, um, that's an understanding of what the fact that none of you had the book, copied the book beforehand. And the expectation is that we would have the opportunity to read it while we were here. Um, this is a Lenten retreat, so we really want to benefit ourselves spiritually. So um, the one, I think, critical component to the benefit of a retreat like this is our quiet time. And so during quiet time, tomorrow morning, you'll be seeing on the back of your schedule here the pages that are recommended to read in the book. So if you can complete those pages, you will better understand the talks that we have coming in the coming days. If you have just come and approached and have not yet registered, please register now. Um, and from there, I think that's all. And we can go ahead and break. Thank you, guys.